The gospel is amazing, isn't it? Dirty hands, filthy hearts. And the sinless Son of God stands between the holiness of the Father and the sinfulness of humanity, of your sin and mine, as a substitute in my place. And this is not just a good man. This is God. God stands. God meets His own demands. God fulfills His own law. And then this perfect righteous one, who is the the eternal I Am, willingly goes to the cross, willingly lays down His life, absorbs hell for you, all of the wrath of God goes into the ground and on the third day rises triumphantly over the dead and then stands even this day, even this moment before you saying, will you come? Will you receive the offering, the atonement that's already been provided for you? Will, will you come under the blood? Will you be washed clean, um, substitute. Do you need a substitute? I need a substitute. I need a substitute for everything. And Christ is that substitute. Praise His name. And we do, who understand that, say, how can it be? How can it be? It makes no sense. It's not fair, and yet it is just, because He bears the penalty, and earns the righteousness. And that is yours, available freely for anyone who would repent and believe. Praise His name. Well, I want you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6 because individuals who understand that, individuals who, who have been saved, who believe that, gather together at least once a week, at least at this moment, to to look to that one who died for them, that's the church, gathers to hear her Savior, her Lord speak. And and that's what we're we're doing. And we're we're looking at while Christ has given a perfect plan, while we have been perfectly redeemed, we're still sinners. And in this amalgam in this group of people that are gathered here this morning. We're incomplete. We're at different stages of our of our Christian life and growth, all secure in Christ, all equal before the Father, because all of us are in Jesus and yet and yet we're broken and we're we're still trying to get it right. A Christian has two basic problems uh, in in the world. One, they don't know what to do, or two, they do know what to do, but they stumble to carry it out. So in your Christian life, you'll go, man, I don't know how to do that. And so you come and gather and hear the Word, or another believer comes along and shows you what you're to do. And so you learn what you are to do. It's, it's new information. You renew your mind. Or you know exactly what to do. And you really want to do what God tells you to do. But Romans 7 says you desire in your inward parts to do it, but you find that you can't always see that in 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 your life. You, you want to do it, but you stumble, you fail, you falter, you fall. So you don't know what to do, or you do know what to do, and you fail to, to carry it out. And so we continually 
place ourselves under the Word. We continually gather together. That's why you don't just get a you know you don't just get a, an immunization. Wouldn't it be nice just to get one shot for sin, one shot for sanctification, and it would all be great from that point forward, never to be tempted, never to fall again? Sure, it would, but that's not that's not reality, and that's not the Christian life. That's not the way God's designed it. Just like God could have created you to only have to eat once in your life and, and have enough energy to sustain you from birth to death, God could have made the Christian life like that, but He didn't. Just as you eat three times a day, and some more than three times a day, it's to remind you that you're dependent. It's to remind you to give thanks to the Father. It's to remind you that you are needy and God is the one who's the provider. So in the Christian life, we come to not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, and we gather to be fed. And we're reminded we're needy. We're reminded that God supplies. We're reminded that we need one another, and we have to do this on a regular basis regular basis, and even when we do it, we still stumble and fail, and so we're looking in Galatians 6 at our exercise plan as a congregation, and we're, and we're, we're looking how to get in better, better shape, if you will. We're looking at meeting the needs of our entire body, doing better communication, better connecting, greater passion for evangelism, and serving together, and as I told you last week, when it comes to exercise... This is about the way I see it. I heard of a retired couple that decided they would walk two miles to stay in shape, and they chose to walk a mile out a lonely country road so that they would have no choice to walk back. At the one-mile mark on their first venture, the man asked his wife, do you think you, you can make it back all right, or are you too tired? And she, Oh, no, she said, I, I'm not too tired. I can make it fine. Good, he replied. I'll wait here, and you go back and get the car and come and get me. That's my idea of exercise. <laughs> and yet, we are on a road, the Bible says, that's, that's less traveled, and we're headed for the celestial city. It's not you go out and you come back. We're, we're on a journey, and we don't end until we get to the finish line. We heard that in 2 Timothy this morning. We press on toward the prize, the high calling of Christ Jesus, and we don't stop along the way. And we have the equipment. We just need to use it. I felt convicted about not being a very good example even to you in exercise when I said that last week uh, until I ran across this. The percentage of Americans who own running shoes but don't run, 87% of Americans own running shoes but they don't run. We have the best running shoes known to man, don't we, right here. We, we, we have the equipment, we just have to use it. So we're going to look this morning in the Word of God, and use our running shoes. So Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, and we're looking at four steps for any church that wants to be healthy and how we as individuals fit into that. So let's read. Brethren, if any man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So we covered last week, and here's what we'll cover today. For if anyone thinks, he is, him, thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work. Then he will have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For each one shall bear 
his own load. Verses 3 through 5 is what we're covering today. That's point 2. And we're looking at these 10 verses. Now, I'll stop there. You can reread verses 6 through 10 in your, in your quiet time. These are four activities given here. Four activities of the Spirit-filled life. Four activities of someone who's bearing the fruit of the Spirit. But in our case, we're applying it to four activities for every single church member. These are activities or local church responsibilities. And they're not options. They're not just for the spiritual ones. They're for all believers. I want you to look at verse 3. I want you to notice how verse 3 begins. It starts with this little word, for. For if anyone. That should immediately tell you that there's something prior. Now, we covered that last week. But it also should tell you it's connected. That's the connector from the previous verse. And it all begins a new topic about individual responsibility. Look how verse 1 begins. Brethren, corporate. If anyone among you is overtaken in his spiritual you all who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of, of gentleness. Bear one another's burdens. There's the, there is the corporate. Now, watch verse 3. For if anyone, there's the individual, thinks himself, there's the individual to be something, when he, there's the individual, is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one, you see how there's corporate and there's individual. So, we're starting on a new topic. Verses 1 and 2 deals with burdens. We're to help other Christians to bear. Verses 3 through 5 are burdens that we as individuals must bear alone. What's happening in and around it is the how and the why. You minister to one another. We get that. We bear burdens. We fulfill the law of Christ. We restore and we bear corporately. But God will say what will keep us from from bearing the burden of another is failing to realize our own responsibilities. Failing to look at ourselves and see where we line up. So, these aren't contradictory. I've had people talk about, or read people talking about, well, this is making sense. In one sense, you're bearing someone else's burdens. And then in another sense, in verse 5, God says, you do it yourself. Well, is that what he's saying? These things aren't contradictory. They're complementary. It's only when we learn to tell between what someone else is to help us bear and what we're to bear alone that we can operate properly in the church. I mean, think about it. If we don't know when a burden is too heavy for us as individuals to bear, we keep trying to bear it ourselves and typically get crushed under the weight, right? You don't know when to ask help for help. You need to understand what is a burden too heavy for you to to carry. And if you do something like that, then other believers come along and pick you up. But if you don't know what a normal load is, then you can end up being a drain on the body, always in need and never contributing. You, nobody wants to believe that they are that that high-maintenance partner in a marriage, right? Or that high-maintenance child in the classroom or that high-maintenance church member. Nobody wants to be that. Well, if you don't know what is expected, what is the load that you should carry, then you can turn out to be one of those two things. So, so how do we do that? How do we tell the difference between something that's too heavy for an individual to carry so we're to put the shoulder up under it? And how do we tell the difference between, okay, what is my load? What am I supposed to be carrying as, a, as, a, as an individual? Well, there are three assessments, I think, that, that, that God gives us right here in verses 3 through 5 that I want, I want to show you. Okay? 
Now, we're under point number two, you carry your own load. And he gives us a self-evaluation. Then there's a load evaluation. And then there's the Lord's evaluation. Look at this self-evaluation in verse 3. We have to become good self-assessors. If anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. There's a self-evaluation going on in that verse. You ever heard of John Quincy Adams? You should have heard of John Quincy Adams. He held more important offices than anyone else in the history of the United States. He served with distinction as president, senator, congressman, ministered to major European powers, participated in various capacities in the American Revolution, the War of 1812, and events leading to the Civil War or the war between the states. Yet, at age 70... 70 years of age, with all of that under his belt, this is what he wrote, quote, My life has been a succession of disappointments. I can scarcely recollect a single instance of success in anything that I ever undertook. That's what he wrote at age 70, having done all of those things. That was his self-evaluation. I would say some of you have that same problem. You look at yourself, and you think, I'm the biggest loser walking when in reality, you're God's treasure. You might be the biggest loser walking, but you're God's loser. Amen? That's poor self-evaluation. Every person here is valuable to the Lord, and every person is needed in the body. That was the whole point of 1 Corinthians 12. The other type of person, though, does what's found in verse 3. The other type of person looks at others and thinks, you are the biggest loser walking on the planet. That's what's going on in verse 3. That type of person sees the sign in the store window that reads, no help wanted, and they look at their neighbor and say, you should apply, you'd be great at that, right? One says, I'm I'm not good enough for God to use me, and the other says, you're right, but I am. And God says both are faulty assessments. Look at verse 3 again. Watch the contrast here. Think versus is, something versus nothing. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Read that again. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You notice the contrast. Now notice he doesn't say, if he is something. He says, seeing he is nothing. And he says that if you have that, faulty conclusion, you are self-deceived. You ever met somebody who's self-deceived? Well, you look in the mirror and you be self-deceived on a regular basis. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, Our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We have to let God try the reins of our heart. The Apostle Paul said, Even though I know nothing in my conscience that would condemn me, I'm going to wait until Judgment Day for my own evaluation. And he says to the Corinthians, It's a little thing for you to evaluate me. We can't even self-evaluate properly, so we look through the lens of the Word, and we come under the Word. person described here has a faulty scale and therefore comes to a deceived conclusion. A person is not to think he is something when he is nothing, but he is to see in Christ he's everything. And both pulling crawling down in a hole, digging a hole and pulling the dirt in on top of yourself and standing over the hole and saying you got yourself there on your own, both of those have their roots in pride. 
which is why I eat. I mean, you, you hear this all through this passage. Okay? You hear spiritual restorers as one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Anyone who thinks himself to be something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. He's sanctifying our hearts, salting our hearts with the truth of who we are without God so that we wouldn't be lifted up in pride. Charles Spurgeon said pride is one of the most unreasonable sins. There is never in a poor sinner any reason why he should be proud. Suppose a man is wealthy. Well, who gave that wealth to him? And having it now, how much of it can he carry away with him? And his wealth is always, uh, and is wealth always a testimonial of the character of the possessor? It's not. Sometimes it's given to the very basest of mankind. And suppose a man boasts of his talent. For what has he to pride himself in that? Did he make his own talent? Suppose that he has a skull that happens to be bigger than his neighbor's. And there are certain organs that were more fully developed than others. Did he create his own brain? Did he give himself his own capacities? There is a great deal in our descent and in our birth gifts. But being gifts, these are not for us to pride ourselves upon. For them we must all give glory to God, for certainly they come from Him. Spurgeon went on to say, Pride is like standing on bubbles, which as soon as they burst beneath our feet... It is the worst foothold. We have many, we have reasons for almost everything, but there are no reasons for pride. And I think that's the attack of verse 3, of the pride of our own hearts. Did you know Romans chapter 12 echoes exactly what Paul says here in Galatians? It says, says it in a positive way. Let me read that to you. Galatians 12:3. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. How is he to think, Paul? According as God hath dealt to every man a measure of faith. So he doesn't say your constant conclusion is that you're a dirt bag. You're a dirt bag before you come to Jesus, but then you have Jesus, and he makes you new. Nor are you to say everybody else is a dirt bag. You are to say, I am nothing in myself, but in Christ I am everything as God has dealt to every man a measure of, uh, of faith. So what does that have to do with bearing one another's burdens? Poor evaluation of self will lead to poor evaluation of others. And it will keep you from being useful in the body. Now think about it. When are you the most apt to be tender toward the failures of others? Now think about that. When do you find it easiest to be the most tender the most understanding about the failures of others. I tell you when it's with me, it's when I've just fallen flat on my face and God has dispensed grace to me, right? When do I find it the most difficult? When do I find it the easiest to be proud and think about someone else, not be as forgiving, and demand that they meet a bar? When I've just overcome temptation? And so what does the Bible say? Be careful when you think you stand, lest you fall. And yet, when you've recently fallen in something, then you realize, but for the grace of God, go up. That's what it has to do with evaluation of self will lead to a poor evaluation of others. Do you, you're, do you think you're something when in fact you're nothing? Do you think someone else is nothing when in fact they're much to God? Now... Don't judge me, okay? But there are certain TV shows 
that I find intriguing. And, and usually they have to do with, uh, you know, with, with finding some type of treasure. And it can be silly things. You've seen that TV show about, about where you go buy in storage lockers or those, uh, um, um, what are they called, the, the containers that come over on the ships and they've fallen into the water. You know, I mean, everybody likes that. You want to you wanna give $50 for the, you know, for the shipping container. It opens it up, and it's got 15 Harley Davids in it. Davidson's in it, perfect, ready, to, and it's worth $100,000. I, you know, I like, I like watching those kind of things. I like the idea that there can be treasure in the amongst the trash. So whatever those TV shows are, I usually enjoy them. And so I found this interesting. There was an American tourist in Paris who purchased an inexpensive amber necklace in a trinket shop. And whenever that American came back through, he was quite surprised at the high duty that he had to pay to clear customs in New York. And this aroused his curiosity. So he had it appraised. And after looking at the object under the magnifying glass, the jeweler said, I'll give you $25,000 for it. $25,000 for this inexpensive amber necklace. Greatly surprised, the man decided to have another expert examine it. And when he did, he offered 10000 more. He offered 35000 for it. And so the man finally says, you know, what is so valuable about this trinket, this old necklace? And so the jeweler said, look through the glass. And before his eyes, the inscription that he could read that he couldn't see with the naked eye, said, from Napoleon Bonaparte to Josephine. And the value of the necklace came from the identification of the famous person that it was attached to. There wasn't any more value in the amber or the trinket. The value was that it was Napoleon's and that he had given it to Josephine. You, in and of yourself have little value whenever you look at the sin and what you can offer to the Lord, but you have something far more valuable beneath the surface than Napoleon's name. We have the very nature of Christ, do we not? And your name, the Bible says, is graven on the palms of His hands in Isaiah. What will keep you from bearing the burden of another is, is conceit, which is self-deception. So self-evaluate. And what will keep you from conceit and self-deception is putting to test your own work. So here's number two of the evaluation. Self-evaluation and then work evaluation or load evaluation. Look at verse 4. Here's the second. Notice it's a conjunction, conjunction here. But, or if anyone, but let each one examine his own work. And then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Now, wait a minute. The Bible just told me that I'm not to think about, think myself something when I'm actually nothing. I am nothing. That's what the verse says. But then I'm supposed to examine my work, and, and if I do, then I'll have rejoicing in myself alone? What does that mean? That doesn't make any sense. Well, it makes perfect sense if you understand what God is saying here. Now, his own work is pulled to the front of the sentence. So it's like this. Paul says, his own work he must test. But his own work let each one examine. Then he'll have rejoicing in himself, in his own work, and not in another's works. 
So there's the comparison going on, looking at someone else versus looking at yourself. So here's the evaluation. Now you're not just evaluating who you think you are in light of who you really are. Now you're looking at your work, your burden, what you do in the church. And you're not to compare that to someone else. You're, compare that, you're to compare that to what God has given you to do. Interesting word here that's used for examine. Let each one examine his own work. It's, a, it's like the testing of the purity of, of a metal. It's, it's not just giving a passing consideration. You ever known somebody who just has the ability to, to evaluate things, to calculate things quickly? I mean, we, we marvel even at people that have autism and those kind of things that can just, you know, what was the, the rain man where the uh, toothpicks would fall on the ground and he could immediately say, you know, 432, just like that. Well, some people just have a skill to be able to look at a load of lumber, or to be able to look at a pile of bricks, or to be able to look at a job and say, that's roughly going to take me, you know, two weeks, and the bid on that would probably be around $10,000. And when you actually go out and measure it out, they may be maybe $500 to one side or the other, but they're, they're pretty close. They just have the ability to, to do that. The idea here of testing is not just, a, not just someone who has that natural ability, but actually examining. This may help. When I was a, when I was a little boy, uh, my dad was big on work. You've probably picked that up from some of the stories, like digging swimming pools so that you would appreciate that, and I'm very thankful that my, dad, that my dad was. I started working very young, and as soon as I was legal, which was 14 years of age, um, I started working for a hospital, mowing grass. As a typical boy, one of the things I had to learn, it wasn't work, my dad had me working earlier, but it was actually paying attention to detail. So as a young boy, I was all about getting the job done. So they give me this field, go mow the grass. My task was get it done as quick as I could. And of course, everybody else who was there working hourly wage was going, slow down, don't work so fast. You're going to make us look bad. But then whenever my boss would come around, he'd walk around the yard and he could see you missed this spot and you cut a corner over here because you were going too fast. I remember my grandfather, when I'd mow his grass... He would just kindly try to get me to slow down. You know, young people, just hurry up and get it done. Well, the idea of the word here is not about the distance, the yard. Uh, it's not about being able to see your work at a distance, like what the yard looks like whenever it's mowed. It's the close examination where you can see the imperfections. That's like this word. And you must examine your own work. You must give a genuine a close examination to see if you're carrying your own weight. Let each one examine his own work. Do you pay more attention to your own work or someone else's work? I already know the answer to that. It's somebody else's work. Because I do the same thing. Anytime there's some type of difficulty in... In my marriage, of course, that's a rare occasion because I'm such a perfect husband, right, dear? I didn't hear an amen. Did you hear an amen? Yeah, you're exactly right. I'm not supposed to lie in the pulpit. That's right. 
Anytime, my first reaction is to evaluate. Well, yeah, I'm done wrong, but the reason I'm acting this way is because Tracy didn't do X, Y, and Z. If she would have done X, Y, and Z, then I would have never done it. So I confess my own sin, but the reason I sinned is because of her sins, and there's usually three or four on the list. You understand what I'm saying? It's a lot easier to look at someone else and say what they're doing or not doing and not looking at, your, at yourself. And when you do look at the work that you do in your marriage, or in this case in the church, what do you, what do you see? Do you see not just the putting to the plow, but have, do you pay attention to the detail that's there? Do you stand back and look at the yard as a whole, or do you give close examination? Paul says give close examination. One man said there are three kinds of workers. For example, when a piano is moved, the first gets behind and pushes, the second pulls and guides, and the third grabs the piano stool. Paul says, evaluate your work and don't be the guy who grabs the piano stool. You may be the one guiding the piano and pulling. You may be the one that God's ordained to push. But whatever you do, put your hands there. I found this interesting. This is attributed to Gandhi. I don't know how many times I've quoted Gandhi, but this is a good principle. It's a biblical principle. He said, My grandfather once told me that there are two kinds of people, those who do the work and those who take the credit. He told me to be in the first group. There's less competition there. It's true. Now, I've heard that attributed to other people. The reference I got was attributed to Gandhi. When it comes to the Lord's work, we each have gifts and talents and resources, and that is our own work to fulfill. That's our duty. And we don't want to be the guy who goes to the piano stool when it comes to the Lord's work. And there's no retirement or end. You're always to be about the work of the Lord while it's day. The farmer said the hardest thing about milking cows is that they never stay milked, right? (laughs) The hardest thing about the work of the Lord or the work on your marriage or the work on your life is that it never gets done. We want to be one inoculation and done. The cows in the church barn never stay milked. There's always work to be done, and all of wet work is pleasing to the Lord. Now, in our society, I think that's hard because work has become bad. You know, we work to take ease. What do you think about What do you think about Monday? Oh, Monday. What do you think about Friday? Friday, right? The weekend's coming. You work to take ease. Why do you work? Why does the average American, why does a secular person who has no relationship with God work? They work so they can retire. They work so they can take vacation. And there's nothing wrong with taking Sabbath and taking vacation. As a matter of fact, some of you probably need to pay attention to that principle because you're also in America, which says work 24-7 and never, never rest. But work is not a bad thing. Work was before the fall. Work's not part of the curse. You know what the curse is about work? The curse is that you will constantly be at work and your hands will not produce what they should produce for your labor. Earth will fight against you. Your work won't be complete. Won't heaven be a wonderful thing that whatever you put your hands to, it will produce exactly what you intended it to and it will never erode? That would be a wonderful thing. Isn't it fulfilling when you work? And you get done. And isn't it a bummer 
whenever you, you know, you look at the grass and you say, man, that looks great, the grass looks great, I mowed it, and then three days later you come in from work and you go, man, I need to mow the grass again. Why is our current welfare system viewed in such a negative concept? Because people who can work won't. Do you have any, do any of you have any problem coming to the aid of someone who can't work? I don't have any problem doing that. Do any of you have any problem giving someone a leg up or a help up whenever they've got behind or they failed? I don't have a problem doing that. The problem I have is, is giving to someone who can work, who won't work, and they just want a free lunch. And so, God says to us here in the Word that we are to give close examination to our own work when it comes to the church, so we don't treat the church like a welfare system. You can come and get the sermon cheese and fellowship check and shirk your responsibilities to serve when you're able, and that's bad, right? That's what he says. You've been saved to serve Christ. When you do that, when you examine your own work and there's something that remains, then you'll have rejoicing. Look at into verse 4. He will have rejoicing in himself alone and not another. Paul says, when you evaluate your own work, you're not to compare it to another's. You're to compare it to what the Lord has given you to do. And if you find after close examination you're doing all the Lord has given you to do with the talents and the tools and the treasures and all of those things of the Lord, then you have reason to be happy. You have reason to rejoice. You have reason to boast. And our boasting is in the Lord. Martin Luther said, it's all about doing it unto the Lord. He said, the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. I think we all get that. You know, the man who plows the field, if that's what God's called him to do, is doing just as valuable work as someone who stands and preaches. But listen, I think this is what is so helpful that Luther says. But it's not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. Do you see what makes it count? You examine it and you're doing it as unto the Lord and there's excellence there and then you can rejoice in that because God is pleased. Um, I have a number of Christian t-shirts and some of them are, are one of my favorites. My kids has it. Not against wearing Christian t-shirts, but which is more important? Wearing a Bible verse on your t-shirt or actually living a life that backs up the Bible verse? So it's what Luther is saying. What makes praiseworthy about the shoes is not putting little crosses on the shoes, but that you actually were a good cobbler. And so he tells us to examine, and if you find something that's praiseworthy, then you can re- rejoice. And you're doing it under the Lord. So self-evaluation. If you're thinking too highly about yourself or comparing it to another or thinking too lowly, you won't focus on the Lord. He says you'll have rejoicing if you examine your own work and you find something there to remain and you've done it unto the Lord. And then notice what he says here, and not in another. You'll find rejoicing in your own work alone and not in, not in another's. Pan American Games, Lou or Greg Luganus was asked how he coped with the stress of international diving competition. 
He replied that he climbs to the board, takes a deep breath, and thinks, even if I blow this dive, my mother will still love me. (laughs) And then he goes for excellence. At the beginning of each day, you take a deep breath. At the beginning of whatever labor it is that God's given you to do, you take a deep breath and you say, even if I blow this, God will still love me. And it's not because I am so good or others are so much worse, but it's because God is good. But you still have to get on the platform, and then you still have to dive off of the platform. And we do that all, self-evaluation, evaluating your own work, because one day the Lord will evaluate. Look at verse 5. Here's the final evaluation. Notice there's another little connector there. Four, for each one shall bear his own load. Now pay attention very carefully to those words. Let me read that again and put the emphasis. For each one shall bear, will bear his own load. Do you notice that? What is that? Past, present, or future? Well, it's future tense. You will bear. What's he talking about? What you bear now, the load that you have now, you are to examine that load. How you're fulfilling that load. You will bear future tense before the Lord at the Bema seat one day. It's very interesting that Paul changes the word here. In verse 1, I'm sorry, verse 2, we're to bear one another's burdens. In verse 5, each shall bear his own load. One is a burden too heavy, and this, verse 5, is a soldier's pack. It's a person's proper burden. You will bear your proper burden before the Lord in this future moment in which you'll give an account for your gifts, for your talents, for your life, what you did for the Lord in His church. It will not be another's work. It will be your work. It won't be an unfair evaluation. It will be based upon exactly what God has gifted and given you to do. It will be a soldier's pack. You ever been on a hiking trip with your kids and you're watching them pack the backpack before they go and they're putting everything but the kitchen sink on there and you know about five seconds up the hill you're going to be carrying that backpack, right? So what do you say? Don't overload it. There'll be water when we get there. You don't need your matchbox cars. You don't need all that. You need exactly what you need to get from point A to point B on this hiking trip. And you do that for others. In the Christian life, you need exactly what you need. The load that you bear is the load that you're supposed to bear. And you don't need more and you don't need less because other people shouldn't have to carry your pack going up the hill. But if you get a broken leg or you get dehydrated or you get something else, then the whole church is supposed to come along. Now that burden's too much for you to bear and they're supposed to come along and help pick that up and carry it. And that's what's going on. And what will set you in the right frame of mind to do that is to look at yourself and realize that you're nothing, not something, to evaluate closely exactly what am I putting my hands to and what am I doing, and then also remembering that all of my labor and all of my work I will bear before the Lord one day. I will stand before Him and I will take the pack and I will lay it before Jesus and He's going to go through the pack and find out what's in there and what's not in there. And if it's empty, you don't want that situation because there won't be any rejoicing then oh you'll be saved you'll you'll go into the kingdom if you know christ but what matters in heaven 
what will you be doing in heaven? You will be worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ who is the centerpiece of heaven. What will your worship be in heaven? The Bible talks about crowns. Trying to give us some ways of our works. Works don't save, but works matter, don't they? And what are this we saw? Look for me at Jesus' feet. What will I be doing at Jesus' feet? I'll be bowing there. What will I be doing for my crowns? I'll be casting my crowns at Jesus' feet. All of the things that you do in life, all of the load that you carry, all of the people that you win to the Lord, all the labor that you do, you won't stand before God and say, look at what I did. Give me credit for that, right? You're going to be on your face saying, Lord, I didn't do anything. I'm just a sinner saved by grace, just serving you. And you're going to be casting your crowns and you're going to be worshiping Him. You know what your worship will be in heaven? The rewards in some ways, it'll be the rewards that you receive at the Bema Seat where you're rewarded for what you've done in this life, you will turn around and take those rewards and for all eternity you'll give praise and honor to Christ. So do you want a little itty bitty thimble to worship Jesus or do you want a dump truck load? I want a dump truck load, but when I examine my life, do I find that there's enough for a dump truck load? It's one's own proper burden. You don't compare your load to someone else and become proud. You prove your own load because you'll carry that load before the Bema seat. There is a performance evaluation coming. And the only time we worry about performance evaluations is when we don't think that they're going to go well for us. Do you mind getting called in your boss's office when you're expecting a raise because you've been a really good employee? No. You know when I don't like to be called into the boss's office? When I'm not sure that I've done that too good of a job keeps us on track. A retired man became interested in the construction of an addition to a shopping mall and observing activity regularly. He was especially impressed by this large uh, equipment operator. He was just very conscientious. Did everything meticulously. And the day finally came when this man would go out and watch him every day. The day finally came when this man had a chance to tell the heavy equipment operator how much he enjoyed watching his scrupulous work. And looking astonished, the operator said, You're not the supervisor? I'm not your supervisor. You're not mine or your neighbor's. But there's one who judges. And he will judge you and he'll judge me with a perfect scale. And he will ask us, have we borne our own load? So we test our work, evaluate ourselves, evaluate our work, and then do all of that in light of the Lord's evaluation. Let me pray for you.